Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The scripture records for us, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works you did at first. Excuse me, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This morning, I want to take the time to do two different things. First of all, I want to do an introduction that we're going to do on the PowerPoint. uh, And then we want to go through the text and I'll preach through some different aspects for us this morning. So there's your warning. It could be slightly longer than normal, but we want to do an introduction. So look up at the screen here if you would with me because we are commencing our new series on the seven churches and my goal is to get one church every week and I have already realized just how difficult that is this week but we're going to do it. So we are looking at correspondence from Christ is the series if you like and it is the letters to the seven churches. We have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and our focus this morning will be the church at Ephesus here in Revelation chapter 2. But to give us a little bit of background, because I think it's important before we get into this particular text, we need to see the cultural context of what's happening. So first of all, authorship. In your Bible, if you have a red-letter Bible, not that I'm highly pro-red-letter Bibles, but if you do have one, you'll note that these letters are in red, and they are letters from the Lord Jesus Christ to seven churches. Now, there's no difference in inspiration right throughout the scripture, but there is something significant about a letter from Jesus Christ to a church, isn't there? I couldn't imagine opening an envelope this morning with a letter from Jesus Christ to Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church. And so we want to treat these uh, with the appropriate sobriety and uh, understand that these are letters from Christ to a church at the time. The contents of these letters are recorded by the Apostle John and were to be distributed among the seven churches in Asia Minor. I want to talk a little bit about background. The Lord Jesus in this time period has already been in heaven for nearly 60 years. He's ascended, he's resurrected, he's gone from the earth physically and is with his Father in heaven. And it's been about 60 years. Reasonable amount of time. John is the only apostle who is still alive and he is around about 90 years of age. Just put yourself in that perspective. You were one of the 12. You walked with Christ. You've been serving now for 60 odd years. You're the last man standing from the original 12. The aged apostle. And John had been banished Uh, to the Isle of Patmos because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. And this on the Isle of Patmos is where he uh, received the visions that we read of right throughout the book of Revelation. The purpose of this book is stated in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, which says this, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place, uh, those that are and those that are to take place after this. The past The present and the future is his goal in writing and recording this book of Revelation. And one day, I hope, we'll actually go through the whole book, but that's not going to happen at this stage. Let me give you a bit of geography here, uh, just real quick so you get an idea. Right here in that middle space is Patmos. It was turned into a prison colony and this was part of the Roman Empire and John was banished there. That's where he is. But Ephesus, which is the church we're looking at, is just across the way. And you'll note that they're in a little bit of a circuit and it goes in the order of the circuit. 
And the Apostle John very likely was involved in every one of these churches at some point, perhaps in some sort of overseeing way with pastors in each of those churches. And so he is very, very aware and concerned for those particularly seven congregations. But he begins with Ephesus, nearest to Patmos. I want to talk quickly about the recipients of this letter, again, to give us some cultural context here. So you'll look in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church. The angel of the church is the direct recipient of this letter. The Greek word for angel, unfortunately, I think it is unfortunate that they've left it as angel in our translation because the word angelos in the Greek is simply messenger. We think of a heavenly body. We think of uh, an angel or a seraph or a cherub or something like that when we see the word angel. But in actual fact... It is dealing with a messenger, one who is sent. And I believe, after careful study, that he's talking about the pastor or spiritual leadership of that church. He's writing a letter to the leadership of that church to be read out to the assembly. That's all it is. I don't think it's anything mysterious or mystic. I believe that's what he's referring to there. But the broader recipients of this letter is the church as a whole. It's not just for the pastor, not just for the leadership, it's for the whole church. And the Lord Jesus' intention in writing this letter was that it be read out to the whole church body. And we see that in the previous chapter. Blessed is the one who reads this out to the churches out loud. So that's the point of it. A little bit of history here, and I love this kind of history. This really excites me. The gospel first came to Ephesus through the faithful work of Priscilla and Aquila. And you can read about that. You'll have a copy of the notes available to you during the week. Apollos, that great orator, was also involved at Ephesus um, in preaching the gospel. We see that in Acts chapter 18. But the organised church, the formalised church, really began when the Apostle Paul, on his third missionary journey, baptised some believers and then spent three years, three years with them, discipling and teaching them. What a rich time that would have been. Ephesus has a rich heritage as a church. And you'll note also uh, uh, that um, the church at Ephesus had the privilege of being pastored or ministered to by some faithful men, including Timothy, who we've looked at at the past, Onesiphorus, Tychicus, and the Apostle John, according to early church writings. That's a bit of a summary of the people. Now let's quickly look at the city of Ephesus. Who is this place? What does this place look like? Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor because this is where the Roman governor resided. So this place is an important place in the scheme of early Christianity and the Roman Empire. The population of Ephesus at this time is estimated to be about 500,000 people. That's a lot of people at that time in one area. Ephesus was considered a free city, which meant that they were permitted to self-govern And no Roman troops were garrisoned there. It's an important city then. They can govern themselves and they don't have any Roman troops there because they're not concerned about that particular city. It's a port city. It was a hive of activity and a great place for merchants to sell their wares. For example, country tech, my business would be in Ephesus. Okay, because it's a good place to sell your goods and your wares. That's the kind of place. If you were a business person, that's where you'd want to be. Your imports come from the, uh, uh, from the port city and uh, lots of people come to Ephesus. But Ephesus was most famous for being the centre of worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana. The temple of Artemis was the most prominent landmark in the area and the most important source of income. For the entire city. Uh, We find that every spring a month long festival was held. A month long festival of the calendar year in honour of the goddess. Which included athletics, drama, musical performances. And it's even possible and likely that the Apostle Paul was referring to this event as an opportunity for greater outreach in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 8 where he says, I'm just going to wait Because I'm going somewhere, but I'm going to wait. And most people, commentators think, he was waiting for all these people to be there for this month period where they worshipped the goddess Diana. Have a think about this. 
Okay, this is where this church is located, the temple of Artemis just nearby. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The idol of Artemis at the entrance of the temple was a gross multi-breasted monstrosity which the worshippers believed had fallen from heaven. And the Bible tells us that was what they believed in Acts 19. History records for us that there were as many as 1,000 priestesses or ritual prostitutes on the temple steps at any time. We're not saying 9 till 5 in the day. We're saying at any time. There were 1,000 prostitutes on the steps ready to be involved in ritual paganistic sexual immorality. That's a third of Alexandra right there. The temple grounds were filled with statues, idols, images, priests, prostitutes, bankers, merchants, musicians, dancers and hysterical worshippers. The temple was made up of 127 ionic columns which stood 18 metres high. It was a large marble building measuring 114 metres long by 54 metres wide. And there is an illustration of it for you. That's what most archaeologists from fragments left believe it looked like and historical data. What an amazing place. A little church, possibly a little church, huddled in the shadows of that monstrosity. This is the church at Ephesus. Imagine living in this culture as a Christian. Imagine the hardships that confronted the church in Ephesus. And so for us this morning, Ephesus, the commended church where love grew cold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have already dealt with much of the cultural context and we've flown through it uh, to give us just a little bit of insight into what was happening in this particular day and time. Lord, we're thankful for the church at Ephesus. We're thankful for the epistle that was written to the Ephesians and we're thankful for the warnings the commendations and the comments made by the Lord Jesus here in Revelation chapter 2. And we pray that as we look at each of these in the time we have left, that it would be encouraging to us, that it would be convicting to us, that it would cause us as a church to be ever so mindful uh, of our relationship with you individually and collectively. Help us in these next few minutes, we pray. Help me to communicate effectively that which you would have me to say for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So with all of that background before us, some information, and there's so much more that could have been said, but hopefully that puts us in the picture. Look at verse 1 with me. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first thing that I want you to see this morning in this text is that Christ sustains his people. Christ sustains his people. It's the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20 in your Bibles there. In case you're wondering what the symbolism is here, John records what the Lord Jesus said earlier. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's our explanation. But look at the word hold here in our text in English. The words of him who holds. This word hold has the idea of strengthens, to retain something, to sustain something, to keep it and to guard it. When I was reading this in the study over the last few days, I was so amazed and encouraged by the fact that Christ says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
He holds, he upholds, he strengthens. And for me personally and for my brother Terry in leadership here as well, that is such an encouragement to me that when I as a pastor and as a teacher and as a leader and as a messenger to this church called of God, I can know that the strength that is required is not my own, but it is the strength that comes from Christ and it is him who holds us. And it's only when I remove myself from his his strength that he provides, it's only when I take my focus off him, him that I start to uh, extinguish the, my natural strength. But while I am letting him take control of every aspect of my life, I am able to be sustained and strengthened. And that encourages me so much to be upheld. I can't get out of the grip of Christ. I know that, but I can wander from him. I know that uh, in my own life I have a tendency to do that and when I'm reminded here and you're reminded that your pastors and your elders and those who are called to serve you, they are held By Jesus Christ. What an incredible encouragement. What a glorious truth. But it's not only just for those who are in the leadership. He's not only holding and upholding his chosen leaders. He is also walking in the midst of his church. Here at Ephesus we are told he walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, he lives among his people. He walks amongst them in their lives. He observes all that they say and all that they do. Growing up, uh, my mother had one of those plaques on the wall. Some of you may have seen it that would uh, hang over the, uh, the dinner table and it would say, Christ is the head of this house. The unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Very familiar. Well, perhaps if we were to alter it in accordance with this text, we might say the Lord Jesus is in attendance at every service, listening to every word, reading the thoughts of every mind, observing the motives, the attitudes and the actions of his people. He is with us at this moment. He is amongst us throughout our week and our life, and he is working in us And for us, what an incredible reality that the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, is walking amongst his church. He knows us. He knows our failings. He knows what is happening in our life at this moment. He knows whatever despair and trials we may be going through individually and as a church. And he is familiar with all of these matters because he walks amongst his church. That encourages me. He upholds the leadership, and he walks amongst his church. And it is his church, is it not? Ephesus was his church. Thyatira was his church. Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church is his church. It's not the leadership's church. It's not a person's church. It's not the Pope's church. It's Jesus Christ's church. But look also here it says, the golden lampstands. The church is described as a lampstand. Speaks of our purpose to bring light and warmth to a world stumbling in the darkness. The flame of the candelabra is maintained by the ongoing supply of oil. Oil in the scripture is a wonderful picture of the Holy Spirit. And the reality is that only as the church is empowered by the Spirit of God... Can it burn brightly for his glory? Only as the church is reliant upon the spirit of God doing his work in us and for us, will the flame of God's glorious gospel go out brightly. And if we wander from that, if we no longer walk in the spirit as a collected group of people that are the church here in Alexandra, then we will find that our flame begins to go out. We don't lose our salvation But our testimony will begin to be a dim glow rather than that which is supposed to be a bright light for the nations. Christ sustains his people. That encourages me. Christ sustains you, my brother, my sister. Christ upholds you. Christ is walking in the midst of your life and our lives collectively as a church. But then secondly, I'd like you to see from verse 2 and Verse 3, Christ not only sustains his people, but Christ knows his people. 
Verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The Lord Jesus says, I know on two occasions there, I know, I know. This portion of the letter to this church at Ephesus is filled with commendation, encouragement. He's been walking in the midst of the church at Ephesus. He's he's aware of all that's happening in their life and he encourages them in their doctrine and their service. But lest we go too far, let's remember that the fact that Christ knows his church is both a comfort and a concern. He is intimately familiar with all of the ministries that Ephesus are engaged in. The doctrinal stands, the evangelistic efforts, the trials, the failures, the falling outs that have occurred, the future plans, those who are sick, those who are discouraged, those who are tired. He knows everything about his church. I know your works. I know who you are. I know what you do. I know how you endure. And so in this text, we see it, as I can see it here, we see four things that the Lord Jesus commends Ephesus for. And I want to take the time to look at each of these four things. Look at, first of all, as a sub point, I know your works or your service. I've called this our service. I know your works and your toil. Christ is here speaking of the church's deeds and their labor, what they are doing. Jesus commends them for working tirelessly to preach the gospel, to teach the word, to disciple people, to make inroads into people's lives. This was a busy church that was going about the work of the ministry that they'd been told to in Ephesians chapter 4 earlier. Go and do the work of them. They were doing it. And the Lord Jesus says, I know what you're doing and it's good. I know what you're doing. I can see what you're doing. Your service is good. And maybe some examples, and I don't know that they'd be the same examples we have today, but of service to minister to the needs of others, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can take many forms. For us, uh, we may have organised activities like kids clubs and youth groups and possibly open air preaching or hospital visitations and many other things. He can refer to unplanned events that occur in the life of members of the church, stopping to help someone on the side of the road, comforting a stranger who's in distress, carrying groceries to the car for someone who is unable to do it themselves, and so many other things. Service, what we do, takes many forms. Whatever form our service take, if it is done for Christ, it is worthy of commendation. And may I say this to us this morning? I think we're a busy church. Well, I feel like I'm a busy person. And I think you're busy people doing things for the work of the ministry. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to serve the Lord. And I'd encourage you, if you are not engaged in some aspect of service for the Lord, then get involved. Do something with your hands if you're a practical person. Do something with your mind if you're an intellectual person. Be involved in the work of the ministry because we are called to do that. But lest we become overly external focused, we have some more things to learn here about some internal problems. But external things are not bad. They're good things when they come out of the right heart. And the church at Ephesus, the Greek here suggests that they were ministering to the point of exhaustion. They were tired serving the Lord, but not tired in that they were bored or discouraged They were applauded by Christ for their tireless efforts and so their service. But then we see also their endurance. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. You are bearing up. You have not grown weary, says a little bit further on there. They were a determined church. This church had been in existence for at least 30 years, remember? 
The Apostle Paul had established this somewhere in the 50s, maybe the early 60s, and this church had been there for about 30 years. And can I say to us, although we don't have any actual records of this, knowing this time there was great tribulation. I would be very surprised if some of the members of this local church had not died a martyr's death. Because that was just normal living in this Roman Empire. I'm certain that some have died in the church. I'm certain many have become sick. Many have lost their jobs. Many have had financial crises happen. Many have had lots and lots of trials going on. And yet they remain. And yet they continue. And yet they endure despite all of those difficulties. They had endured the evil reign of Nero, 54 to 68. And what a reign that was. Nero, what an evil man. Some people believed he was the Antichrist and that the Lord Jesus was coming back at any moment then. So evil was his reign. And he even lit the fire of Rome and blamed the Christians on that fire being lit by, uh, by himself, destroyed the majority of Rome, and Christians went through some of the most severe persecution in that time torn apart by lions and wild jackals and dogs they were in gladiator rings and destroyed without given a weapon and there they stood and died for Christ and I have no doubt some of them were at Ephesus what a life we don't know much do we really we don't really see much of this persecution we hear of it on the news occasionally But these people were living it and they were enduring. And then Emperor Domitian comes to the the throne as the one who's in charge of the entire empire from 81 to 96. And boy, are they going through another difficult time. He is the one who was uh, who took the apostle John and put him on the Isle of Patmos, which was an incredible mercy because ordinarily he would have destroyed the man. And what he did is he put him into a great big barrel of oil and burned him. So very likely the apostle John at this time when he is writing either now or just a little bit in the future is going to be literally burned. He doesn't die from it, but burned so that his whole body was filled with scars. That's this emperor. What a time. And here he is on Patmos rejoicing in the Lord John. But the church continued forward. They advanced the cause of Christ even though it had cost them their lives. They would not let the shadow of Artemis' temple prevent their candlestick from shining brightly. O church, may nothing cause our lampstand to not shine brightly because of persecution. In fact, we read that persecution is a wonderful way of ensuring that the lamp does burn brightly because when the persecution comes and everything gets removed from us, then we cast our we are cast upon the mercy of God entirely. Our homes are gone. Our buildings are gone. This lovely place we meet, it's gone. All of those things are gone when persecution comes and then the flame of the gospel burns brighter than it ever did before. And so we ought not to look at persecution as something that's wrong. It's wonderful. It's a good thing. And I'm sure God will give us an opportunity to experience it in greater ways. Ephesus endured. But thirdly, we notice their doctrine and their discernment. Look at what the Lord Jesus says in verse number two. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them To be false. A little bit later, he says in verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The church at Ephesus had a pretty good starting point. The Apostle Paul is their pastor for three years. That would be an experience. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't, I've studied the Apostle Paul's life. I don't know what he looked like, but in my mind's eye, I mean, he's, he's a Jew, so he's, you know, he's full on, he's in your face, and you all know what a Jew's like. You're looking at one. But this man, he is, he is on fire, and he just, all he wants to do all day long is teach and preach the gospel. And so he's been three years, he establishes this church and teaches them all that God has given him, discipling and training them. Needless to say, they got some good teaching. They were founded on some good training. It was Paul writing to this church 30 years earlier than this time now where he spoke of the importance of teaching and maturity in Ephesians 4.14 where he said that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro 
carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Ephesus had learned well and obeyed Paul's teaching. They had this essential element of discernment and doctrine. They would not uphold or support false and erroneous teaching. They knew how to test those who came to them claiming to be messengers of God, but were in fact liars. May I say that one of the saddest realities today in church is the lack of discernment and doctrine. God's people have largely replaced the essential element of the scriptures, God's revelation to man, with entertainment, with experience, with performance. And I'm sad to say this, and it's not a criticism, but it's true. The average Christian today that I meet around the place cannot defend the great truths of the gospel because they don't know them. They don't have that teaching. They're not in a place where they receive the true teaching of the word of God. They're in places where it's all about the entertainment, the music, the lights and and creating an atmosphere. And all of those things in their proper place may be fine. But we're talking about the word of God and knowing how to discern, knowing how to divide correctly what the scripture says, what's important and what is not important. And oh boy, do we need discernment in this day and age. We are getting tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine in today's Christian society. People are believing falsehoods left, right and centre. Not a week goes by where I'm not confronted with a Christian who asks a question, but their question is bathed in psychology or in some sort of other worldly thinking. And they come to the Bible seeking an answer to help with their psychological situation but they're coming not expecting this to help them, but expecting this to support their decision-making. We got it the wrong way round. And we need discernment in the word of God and doctrine as a foundation. Today we hear so much about love, so much about care for one another, and that is critical. But if we don't have the doctrine with the love, we're in deep, deep trouble. May God help us. To be a church that discerns and is doctrinally sound with a foundation that can be built upon, but exercising itself always in love, speaking the truth in love. And so Ephesus were confronted with the Nicolaitans. This was a sect that was started by Nicholas, who is believed to be one of the seven men of Acts chapter 6, chosen to be the early deacons in the church. Early church writers believed that Nicholas was led away into heretical teachings and formed this Gnostic sect. The Nicolaitans taught free love and that adultery and fornication were amoral. The idea there was that they mixed their pagan rites with Christian ceremonies and extended their Christian liberties to all manner of sensuality. So the idea is, even though here I am married, um, you're free to, uh, to be with my wife, I'm free to be with your wife, and this is all in the name of Christ, and it's, it's no problem whatsoever. It's amoral. This is not immoral, it's amoral. That's what the Nicolaitans were teaching. What a wicked, heinous crime against what God instituted as the marriage. And you know what? The Bible says Ephesus hated the teachings and works of these apostates and resolutely stood against their heinous assertions. At the risk of sounding unloving, and I hope this is not true, I don't believe it is, but I do want to say this to us. There ought to be a righteous hatred for false teaching. I'm not saying we hate those people who are erroneous in their teeth. I'm not saying we hate the people, but I'm saying we ought to hate that. And you know why? Because we love the truth. If you love the truth, you have to hate that which is error and that which is evil and stand opposed to it. See, the problem is we talk so much about love today, but what are we actually loving? Well, we're loving people. Yeah, but we're called to love God and the truth of God and people. But we're called to love the truth. So in loving the truth, we must dispel and dispense with that which is evil teaching. And church, we must do that today and in the years to come. And the whole the hordes of hell will gather against a church that stands for truth. 
That is what will happen. And he will seek to destroy us. He will bring in disunity and he'll bring in differences of opinion on foundational, doctrinal, theological truths. I'm not talking about all these other things out there that really don't matter. I'm talking about the, the core aspects of our Christianity. We must hold on to those truths. And you know what? You, unless, unless you think that I'm being too harsh, look at what it says about the Lord Jesus in verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You say, does Jesus hate anything? Oh, yes, he does. He hates false teaching. He hates that which takes away the glory of his heavenly father and the gospel. So ought we. Do you hate that which the Lord Jesus hates? And then fourthly, we see here, Their purpose. They understood their purpose. Have a look there in verse number three. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. We could otherwise translate this as they persevered for the cause of Christ. All that they did was for his glory. For the sake of Christ. They were toiling and working and serving and enduring and discerning and upholding doctrine for the sake of Christ. They knew their purpose in this life and they were fulfilling it. It's a good church. This is an exciting church. This is a church I want to be a part of until we get to the next verse. And that's where we want to look for just a few moments here before we close. Verse number four. And thirdly. In our major points, Christ warns his people. He commends his people, but he warns his people. Verse 4, all of these wonderful things have happened and he says, but. Oh, the but there, the contrast, the word that puts a stop to it all. The Lord Jesus has led a but. I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love You had it first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So many wonderful commendations. So many great things are happening. And this church of 30 years or so old, it's been doing all these wonderful things, serving the community, enduring hardship, upholding the doctrines of the gospel. And they knew their purpose was for Christ's sake. And then a serious warning is issued. And at this juncture, I need to remind us this morning, please, church, Christ cannot overlook sin in his church. There's this idea today that, well, I'm doing so many good things. Christ will just overlook that. Christ cannot over. That is an impossibility. God is uh, omnipotent. But one thing that he cannot do is overlook sin. There must be discipline for the church that does not. Obey him in its entirety. Christ cannot overlook sin in his church. God will not turn a blind eye to an area that requires change. Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has something against this assembly. I pondered that thought this morning for some time. Imagine... If there were a letter, a real letter, a revelation from the Lord Jesus written to Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church and in there there was an offence that the Lord Jesus had to make note of for us. How awful, how serious, how devastating. You're doing this and you're doing this and all of these other things are just going splendidly. I'm loving what I see here and here and here, but I have this against you. What was the focus of Christ's offense in the church at Ephesus? Their love had grown cold. Their love had grown cold. Now, some mistakenly say that Ephesus had lost their first love. That's not what the text says. They hadn't lost their love. They're not being reprimanded because... They have lost their love or they have become loveless. It doesn't say that at all. It says that they have abandoned the love that they had at the first. 
There's a big difference here. Christ is not saying you have no love in your church or you have left everything to do with love. He's not saying that at all. They had love. They were a loving assembly, I have no doubt. He is here referring to, and note this, he is referring to that vibrant, that radiant, that glowing, that ardent, that zealous, that effectual love that was demonstrated at the beginning. It was that love which clung entirely to Christ, unhindered by the world, the flesh and the devil. Jesus is not talking about their care for one another. He's not talking about their hospitality towards strangers or meeting the needs of the poor. He is referring to the love which emanated from their conversion. It's the love that enthrones Jesus above all else. He says you have all of this good stuff and there's a whole repertoire, a resume of good things. Oh, but I have somewhat against you, Ephesus. You've left that first love. You've abandoned that love that was at the first. So what is that love? It's the love that runs to be by his side and to dwell in his presence. It's the love that willingly relinquishes all other pursuits to follow him. It's the love that shines from our soul, not just from our lips. It's the love which produces a joy and a delight in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the love that fans the flame of genuine service. It's the love that delights to commune with the Lord in prayer. It's the love that can truly sing all that thrills my soul is Jesus. It's that love. They loved Christ, but it had waned. It had grown cold. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He says, remember. Remember. And church, I'm calling us this morning, as my own soul has been called to this in reading this passage, remember. If you're a Christian, you have to be able to remember this because it's a love that was there. If it's not currently there in its fullness, it was there. And he says, remember, the first point here is to remember what it was like. Think back in your mind's eye. Do you remember when your love for Christ was filled with passion and you pursued him above all else? But life gets so complicated, doesn't it? So many things distract us. So many decisions to make every single day. How do I fan the flame of that love again? How do I return? Well, begin by remembering. Remember. Remember that time when you couldn't wait to be back in his word and in prayer. Your heart longed to learn the truths about this incredible person who rescued your soul. Remember when your heart longed to grow as a Christian. Remember when apathy wasn't there. Remember when idolatry wasn't there. Remember when you couldn't wait to share the truth of the gospel with someone because you just found this incredible truth that had been revealed in your heart and your soul and you trusted Christ and he awakened your senses both spiritually and physically and mentally to the truth of the gospel and it was a glow on your face and you had to tell somebody. Remember that time. Remember when you could sing the songs of the faith in truth. It is glory just to walk with him. Jesus is all the world to me. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Remember that time? We've got to remember. If we don't begin with remembering that, then we won't get to the place of repentance because we won't see what it is we're supposed to remember. And this was the problem at Ephesus. He says, remember way back 30 years ago when you were hungry and you had the teaching of the Apostle Paul and everything was new and exciting and vibrant and you were bold and you weren't just going through the motions of Christianity, which so many of us get to. I get to it every week at different times. I'm just going through the motions again. And I have to remember 
have to remember what he's done. I have to remember the gospel. I have to remember what the word says and allow it to fill my heart with joy and praise about this great saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus calls Ephesus to repent. And church, he calls you and I to repent. Repentance is simply a change of direct direction resulting from a change of heart. I was going this way, but God has caused my heart to change and now I am going this way. It's a decision of my will. I've remembered I'm going this way. I've remembered what that path over there is. And that path, I know that path. It's a good path. It's a great path. It's a sanctifying path. And I want to go back there so I remember. And then I say, that's it. I'm leaving this path and I am actively going this way. It's a decision of my will as the Holy Spirit convicts me about it. The Lord Jesus Christ also tells them what will be the result if they fail to put right what is out of order. He will remove their lampstand. In other words, God will not hold up an extinguishing lamp. Our purpose as a church is his glory. If we fail long enough in that cause, God may decide to extinguish that lamp. Not our salvation, but that testimony, that light in that particular area. And that has happened to many a church over many a year. And this is not a warning for us in the sense that I'm not trying to say to us that I think we're going down the wrong path. or anything. I'm just saying that the truth of this matter is the Lord Jesus says to the church, if you're not going to get back to where I need you to be, if my glory is not going to be fulfilled as it ought to be, why would I hold up an extinguishing lamp? I won't. I'll remove it. And I will work on other areas and do other things. And God forbid that one day the Lord would say to us and actively do to us what happened to the church at Ephesus potentially when we don't repent. And he says, I'll work somewhere else. I'll do something else. You're not going to return and I'm not going to keep holding this up. God forbid that should happen. But it will result in the removal of a church as the Lord Jesus here said to the church at Ephesus. But then after all that negativity and after all that hard teaching here that you've just received and we've looked at. Look at verse seven. The Lord Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. There's an option. There's an opportunity here. There's the privilege of change. What a gracious savior. Instead of saying you're out, you're not doing it right. See you later. Our gracious Lord Jesus says, listen. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And by the way, that is pluralized, which means we can make application to us. The churches. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know what the Spirit specifically is saying for us here today, but I do know this. We need a challenge about our love. We need a constant challenge about our love. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to see lastly... That Christ makes a promise to his people. He's commended them, he's warned them, and now he makes a promise. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, well, who is the overcomer? Who is the conqueror? Is that some elite group of Christians within an assembly? No, no, it is not. The conqueror or the overcomer is the genuine believer, the one who truly does endure because he is God's. And you say, how do you know that? First John chapter five, verses four and five. We won't turn, but let me just read it to you. John, the same author, says this for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. You are an overcomer. You are a conqueror if you are truly his. The Bible says there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. What is that tree of life? Well, we know what it was at the beginning. What is it here? This tree of life, I believe, is a symbol or a metaphor of eternal life. I will give you eternal life. And the paradise of God is that place, our eternal dwelling. 
to the overcomer, to the conqueror, to the genuine Christian, to the church that is truly the church of Jesus Christ. You are promised something. You're promised that forevermore you will be with God in his heavenly abode and have eternal life. What an amazing reality. What an incredible truth is ours. We will enter the fullness of eternal life and live forever with our God. What does the Bible say at the end of Revelation? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We have a precious promise. Precious promise here. Given to the church at Ephesus, but true for us today. As we close, I want to remind us that the question being asked this morning is not, do you love Christ? If you're a Christian, you do. The question is not, do you love Christ more than all else? The question is, do you love Christ now like you did at the start? Because that is what the text says. Do you love me with that vibrant, passionate, pursuing love that wants me enthroned in every category of your life. Is that what is true? I wonder, can you say and sing in a few moments, if ever, I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Heavenly Father, we have labored long in this particular passage of Scripture, and uh, Lord, I, I, forgive me if I've said too much uh, or too little on different points, but I pray that you would use these thoughts. Uh, the testimony of this church at Ephesus to instruct and help us as a church individually first and then collectively. Uh, Lord, we, we ask that you would guard us and protect us uh, against, uh, Lord, following our flesh, uh, following the ways of this world which are so easy to uh, pursue and, Lord, to ensure that our love moment by moment is hot and on fire and vibrant, uh, Lord, in uh, passionately pursuing you, that we would be able to say, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Now, Lord, this is not just some light, shallow aspect. That I this is our Christianity. This is everything for to me to live is Christ. This is our purpose. This is our goal. Lord, let us not be so engaged in all these other activities and, and uh, all these wonderful commendations that are good things in and of themselves, but we've forgotten the most important ingredient. We've left and abandoned that which is absolutely essential. And so, Lord, help us to take inventory today of our own hearts before you. We fail. We confess that. We fail at every turn. And you do not cast us off or aside. Uh, but Lord, we, we want to grow. We want our love to be stronger and greater towards you. That that would be fanned. The flame of that love would be constantly fanned by the Spirit of God as we walk in his ways and in this scripture. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.